Mark chapter one, beginning in verse 14. It says, now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Actually, it says, repent and believe in the gospel. In verse 16, it says, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. The first chapter of Mark began with an announcement in verses one through eight. That announcement included the fact that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And then it continues with an acknowledgement of the ministry of John the Baptist in verses 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Now the focus of the chapter is going to shift to the authority of the servant of God. Jesus is approved. And, and called. Remember, he's been approved by the Father and equipped by the Spirit. He has been tried and tempted and tested in the wilderness. And the ministry is ready to begin. The servant will now focus on his authority, his authority over destiny in verses 16 through 20 as he calls the disciples. Authority over demons in verses 21 through 28. Authority over disease in verses 29 through 34. In verses 40 through 45. And then authority in prayer in verses 35 through 39. The authority of Jesus is deeply linked to where he came from, heaven. And who sent him, the Father. And his message, redemption. His authority is also deeply linked to his servant character. And later in this chapter, in chapter 1, in verse 27, you might take a quick look. It says, then they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus reveals the fact all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this should cause you to ask this question. Does Jesus have the authority in heaven and on earth to negotiate a settlement between me and God? And I'm going to suggest something to you because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And because he does have the authority by the father, given his identity, given his mission and given his message, he has the authority to extend to you a promise that he'll save you, that he'll redeem you, 
that he'll forgive you, that he'll reconcile you to himself. The preaching ministry of Jesus will have him speaking to the rich and to the poor, to the oppressed and to the afflicted. And I think that that probably includes all of us then. In other words, it's a thorough message and the gospel is good news because it's the message of hope and joy. Because the gospel is the message of much needed peace with God and from God. And in every generation, people have wondered, what is the purpose of my life? And the question feels urgent and the answer may seem unclear. But in this opening passage, we hear the message of the servant and we are introduced to the men whom Jesus will surround himself with. Jesus will cut through the cloud of ignorance and uncertainty of posturing and politicizing. And so he calls the world to salvation and he calls disciples to service. Look again in verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Right from the start, Mark gives you a little snapshot, a photo of how things will unfold in the ministry of Jesus. When he says after John was put in prison, John was in prison for confronting and rebuking Herod Antipas for his incestuous marriage to his niece, Herodias. And so the John here is the John the Baptist. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with that story Herod Antipas doesn't do well with his rebuke. Um, as a matter of fact, John will find himself in prison. Then John will find himself eventually dead. He does not respond to the message of repentance. And so Jesus came to Galilee, apparently from Judea. What I want to help you understand is that Matthew and Mark and Luke skip over the ministry of Judea, which is recorded in John's gospel, partially in chapter one, in chapter two, in chapter three, and chapter four. And so if you're wondering what took place between verse 13 and verse 14, if you could in your mind think, I should go read John chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and the beginning of chapter 4, and that's what was happening in between verse 13 and verse 14 in the beginning of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel goes directly from the test and temptation of Jesus to the beginning of the Galilean ministry. Here we're introduced to Peter and Andrew and James and John. But we know from John's gospel that these two sets of brothers have already met Jesus. They've already started hanging out with Jesus. They've already been exposed to at least one miracle of Jesus when Jesus turns the water into wine from John chapter 2. Now they're going to be called to full-time ministries as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it says that he came preaching the gospel, the term gospel literally means the good news or the good message. By the way, this interesting word found its way into the Greek language in antiquity. When the Greeks would have to fight their enemies 
and triumph over their enemies. News of the battle and news of the victory would come back to the hamlets and the villages, to the town and the people. And so this was the word that messengers would use to describe an announcement in battle of a victory that had been won. And so the New Testament writers use this word gospel to point to the good news of salvation. Now, like you, you may have grown up in circumstances where that word was a kind of a nonsensical word. I remember the very first time a person asked me the question, are you saved? The very first thought in my mind was, saved from what? What are you talking about, freak? And of course, it means saved from sin. Saved from hell. Saved from a just punishment. We sang it earlier when we were gathering together. We said everyone needs kindness. Everyone needs forgiveness. The kindness of a savior. Let mercy fall on me. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought I need forgiveness? I need help. I need hope. There's something empty. There's something wrong. The good news is the life-giving message to a dying world that you don't have to remain in your sin. You don't have to die in your sin. You don't have to live a life estranged from God. And so in verse 15, it says, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Here in verse 15, where it says, The time is fulfilled. The emphasis is less on chronology and more on urgency. There is a sense in which chronology is true, though. The time is fulfilled from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David. As you march through human history, as you see a united nation and a divided nation, as you see the children of Israel taken into captivity and return, as you see a long silence between the testaments, the time has been fulfilled. A virgin is going to give birth to a son, and that son is going to be the savior of the world. But here, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the interesting point is a sense of urgency the kingdom of hand the kingdom of god is at hand because the king has arrived the king is here and so here is part of the point that i think that jesus is making with the coming of the king god will deal with human beings in a fresh way the kingdom of god refers to god's sovereign rule the place where god is in charge the place where god is in authority and you might be thinking I thought God was in charge everywhere, and you would be right. God ultimately is in charge everywhere. But there are pockets of resistance, aren't there? There are pockets of rebellion. There's pockets that are taking place where the rule of God and the reign of Jesus is resisted and rejected. And so when he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand... In the present sense, he's speaking of the rule and reign that God wants to take place in the heart of human beings. We actually have that clarified in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, where Jesus clarifying says, nor will they say, look here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. 
In what way? The kingdom of God is within you the moment that you lay down your rebellion. The moment of God, the, 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 the kingdom of God can take place inside of you when you're ready to give up. Or as they say in modern parlance, tap out. You're in a struggle. You're in a struggle that you can't win. You're in a hopeless bind. And so check out the message of Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? As a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest to you that the Living Bible puts this passage in a winsome way, but I think a correct way when it says God's kingdom is near. Turn from your sins. Act on the glorious news. Over and over again, the message in the Bible can be summed up in those two words. Repent and believe. As a matter of fact, Paul told the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, he said, I testified both to the Jews and to the Greeks repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we act on the good news? Well, believe it or not, Paul supplies the answer in Acts chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier, even in the Gospels, Jesus, when he was asked how to work the work that God requires, Jesus says, believe on him whom the Father has sent. It was his way of saying, believe me. So how does the work of God begin? I'm going to suggest to you that there is a consciousness of need that takes place deep in the human heart. A need which gives birth to a desire for help. Because faith without repentance isn't really faith. And repentance without faith becomes a recipe for sorrow. So what do I mean? What I mean is the recognition and the realization that there's something wrong. There's something fundamentally broken deep inside of us. I remember when I heard the gospel really for the first time. The person was preaching from John chapter 11. It's the story of Lazarus of how he comes back to life. And Mary and Martha come out and they meet Jesus and they're weeping, they're weeping and crying because their brother is dead. And Jesus comes out and he basically says, roll away the stone of Lazarus. And then... One of the sisters responds to Jesus and says, but Lord, he stinketh in the old King James. In the new King James, we might say there's a foul odor afoot because when a body dies, it begins the unmistakable act of de decomposition. Death has a unique and specific smell. And it was as if the Holy Spirit opened those what seem like not very important words to my heart. I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, you stinketh. And I, you know, I was a teenager and you really don't always put deodorant on. And by the way, teenagers, deodorant is of God. Use it. Do your family and your friends a favor. Personal hygiene, important. You stinketh. And I realized that my life did stink. It was broken and corroded and corrupt 
there was a foul, foul stench that was coming from inside my soul because of my rebellion and my resistance. Let me remind you that repentance includes three things. There's a change of mind. We change our mind about God. We change our mind about sin. We want to do what's right instead of what's wrong. But repentance is is more than a change of mind. It's also a change of heart. And let me remind you, instead of loving sin, we set our affection on the things above. We set our affection on the Lord Jesus Christ. We love Jesus and his commandments. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. This change of heart, by the way, doesn't take place by an act of the will, but rather by an act of God. The Lord God gives us a new heart. He gives us a new spirit. That new heart and that new spirit is predicted in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31, where the Lord says there's going to come a time when I will take out the heart of flesh or the heart of stone and I'll replace it with a heart of of flesh. There'll, There'll come a time when I'll put my spirit inside of you. As a matter of fact, Jesus will have talked about that in John chapter three with the religious leader Nicodemus when he likens The new life as a new birth that takes place. When the spirit comes from on high, we become partakers of a divine nature, it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And it's God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. So repentance is an act of the will, but it's also a change of the heart. But I'm going to suggest to you that it's also a change of life. And I want you to think about this carefully. You can change your mind and you can change your heart. But if you don't change your mind and you don't change your heart, you might be able to momentarily redirect your behavior. But guess what? Behavior that is absent a change of mind and a change of heart will eventually collapse. We can change certain things about our lives. We can even change certain things about our thinking. We we can even change certain things about our affections, but they will be temporal. We will only have changed externally and superficially and real repentance results in a real and permanent change that demonstrates itself in your life. And again, I'm not talking about just simply going to church. And I'm not talking about simply reading your Bible. And I'm not simply talking about praying in occasion. I'm talking a radical, fundamental transformation where you go from death to life and darkness to light. So repentance must mean that there is a required response on the part of the people who are listening. The moment that Jesus says, repent... Would Jesus ask you to do something that you're incapable of doing? I don't think so. So if he's asking you to change your mind, doesn't it make perfect sense to you that he's willing to change your heart? That was my stumbling block. I can't be a Christian. Why not? I'm evil and wicked and sinful. I am the person that your parents warned you about not to hang out with. No, no, Jesus 
can change you. No, no, I don't think so. I know what it's like to be rotten through and through. For me, Christianity was like bowling and and bowling is you get the strike and I always throw the ball in the gutter. It's not a fun game when you always lose and it's not a fun game when you're asked to be nice and you're asked to be good and you're asked to be pleasant and you are not nice and you're not good and you're not pleasant. And by the way, if you would have known me before I became a Christian, you would understand my words. In John's gospel, Jesus uses the metaphor, like I said, of a new birth. And if you are a mother and if you are a father, if you've ever seen a child, you understand that children begin life being very, very small and then they get large rather quickly. And children, given an opportunity, given time and nutrition, will grow up. And that's the point. Parents feed and nurture and instruct them. Children learn about commitment and competence and character and conviction. But I'm going to ask you kind of a hard question, a difficult question. Do all children make it to adulthood? That's right. Some of them don't make it for any number of reasons. Do all believers cross the threshold of maturity and holiness and become disciples? I'm going to suggest to you the answer is no. But can you imagine meeting a child and saying to them, I hope you never grow up? What kind of a wicked statement is that? We want children to grow up and we want new believers to mature. Wouldn't you like to make a commitment to God's word as truth, like it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3? Wouldn't you like to demonstrate competence in that you're able to have your own friendship and fellowship with God? Wouldn't you like to be able to feed yourself? Wouldn't you like to be able to feed others? Wouldn't you like to have a sensitivity to sin and an honesty with God and others? Wouldn't you like to be able to love other people the way Jesus has asked you to? With an other focus, with a servant spirit, with a willingness to exercise self-sacrifice for the glory of God? Wouldn't you like to cultivate godly convictions? Wouldn't you like to love Jesus? Wouldn't you like to exercise self-control and goodness? Wouldn't you like to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, convinced of the worth and dignity of every single human being? That's normal. It's normal for you to want to grow up. Are you convinced of the authority and the reliability of God's word? Are you convinced and committed to cultivating the character of Christ? Are you willing to leave a lasting legacy for the future? Demonstrating that you've been here. Then guess what? The message that Jesus has is that he's willing to save people. But the message doesn't stop there or end there. It's going to continue with discipleship. Look what it says in verse 16. We begin with the cost of discipleship and the servant's call to service. Look at verse 16. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Shimon, Simon, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were 
fishermen. Now, the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Kinarot. It means a harp or a musical instrument. Do you realize how hard it is for Anglo people to say Kinarot? But it's easy if you grew up in my generation and you watched Drizzle, 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 Drone. You learn to make all these kind of weird, strange sounds. The Sea of Galilee isn't really a sea. It's a freshwater lake. It's about 13 miles long. It's about 7 miles wide. And it's about 690 feet below sea level. Do you realize that the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake in the world? Do you know that? There's a rip or a tear that begins right to the north of that. There's a tear literally in the surface of the earth as you continue to go south and you head all the way to Africa into the Rift Valley. There's a scar, if you will, on the surface of the planet and up near the top of the star is this little lake. And Simon and Andrew were brothers and they made their living fishing that lake. They're often characterized by scholars as unlearned and unfamiliar with the sophisticated ways of higher learning, the upper echelons of high Jerusalem society. So were they ignorant or untutored, elementary men governed by Jewish passions and prejudices? Maybe. I think there's a more important question that we need to ask. And that is a question for you. Are you surprised at the choice that Jesus makes? Imagine you came from heaven to the earth. Imagine you're God. Imagine you're the second person of the Trinity. Imagine you can have anyone on your team that you want to have on your team. Would Peter and Andrew and James and John be your first choice? Why not pick important people? Why not pick famous people? Joseph was hated and despised by his brothers. Saul, the king, was a big lumbering farmhand. David was a boy who watched sheep in an obscure village. Amos was a herdsman. Saul of Tarsus was a theological graduate student with no real job except to persecute Christians. And so the moment you ask and answer the question about the choice, it opens the door for something else, a different question. Would Jesus choose somebody like me? Would Jesus be willing to take someone like me, who isn't the most important person in any given room, who isn't the most famous person in any given room. Can you imagine Peter telling Mark the story with a little sanctified imagination? We might have Peter saying, you know, I started out life with my brother. We were casting a net into the Galilee. My mission in life was to try and figure out how to get those fish into that net. Where were you when Jesus called you? For Saul, the apostle who is going to become Paul, the apostle, he finds him as a graduate student persecuting Christians, abusing them, 
tearing things down that Jesus had built up. But God is going to use Paul to tear down vain arguments and human speculations. He's going to rip from Paul the facade that he has anything to offer except for Jesus Christ the Lord. What is it that you do? What is it that you build or what is it that you tear down? What is it that you make or refuse to make? What is it that you do? Because I'm going to suggest to you that whoever you are and whatever you do, God has prepared you from all eternity with a specific set of gifts and talents that are unique to you for a specific challenge that only you can provide. Imagine Peter saying, my whole life was about to change. And yet, in one sense, nothing changed. Jesus would give me a new net. And Jesus would give me the gospel. And Jesus would give me a new catch. The swimming school of humanity living in the deep waters of sin. You know, in order to be a fisherman, you have to be patient, don't you? Have any of you ever gone fishing? Some of you, you've gone fishing. Does it usually work this way? You bait the hook, you put the line in the water, and a fish hits the hook. No, it typically doesn't doesn't work out that way. I'm going to suggest to you that maybe once in a while it does. But fishermen have to be patient, don't they? They have to wait. They have to have the right bait. And they have to be there at the right time. And they wait and they wait and they wait. Oh, and by the way, is it possible to wait the whole day and not catch anything? And by the way, imagine that you had omniscience and you have the ability to know everything about everything. And someone planted in your mind, there's nothing here. You won't catch anything. And guess what you will have done? You will have wasted your day. Would you fish? Some of you might. Because you go, look, to me, putting a hook in the water is way more fun than anything else I do. Maybe. But let me point something out to you. It takes a great deal of patience and it takes a great deal of faith. Because you know what every fisherman really believes in his or her heart? They're there and they're going to bite. In verse 17, it says, then Jesus said to them, follow me. And I'll make you become fishers of men. Think about it. The call to discipleship begins when the Savior says, follow me. And in that simple sentence, in those two words, Jesus gives us instructions, direction. He gives us a way to go and an example to follow. But typically when someone says to you, Follow me. Doesn't that generate a whole bunch of other questions? I mean, if anyone has ever said to you, hey, follow me. Doesn't it ever occur to you to say, where are you going? Where are you going, Jesus? There's an implicit agreement. 
Jesus is saying the moment that Jesus says, follow me, the implication is that you can exactly do that. He will equip the people for the task at hand. Following Jesus isn't simply restricted to going in a particular direction that Jesus is going, but it includes following in his steps, doing what he does, saying what he says. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. We do what he does. Henry Ward Beecher said, quote, the strength and happiness of a man consists in finding out the way in which God is going and going in that way too." unquote. And where is Jesus going? Where is he going? Guess what? The life of Jesus will be filled with adventure and injury. There will be miracles and there will be marvelous healing. But there will be an arrest and there will be ridicule and there will be a cross. But there will also be a glorious resurrection. I'll have more to say about that next week. And there's going to be something even after the resurrection. A glorious harvest of human beings. Alexander Moody Stewart wrote, quote, many are willing that Christ should be something. But few consent that Christ should be everything, unquote. Jesus may mean something to you. Someone important. Something. But is Jesus everything to you? Is he everything to you? Churches are filled with new believers who need spiritual direction, but few show any interest or any promise in discipleship programs. They want to know more or they want to know less, but they don't simply want to heed the call. And let me remind you that discipleship isn't a program, but rather it's a person that you follow and it's a direction that you go with a specific goal in mind, and that is maturation in holiness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, quote, the cross is laid on every Christian. It begins with the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ, unquote. In other words, if the cross is laid on every Christian and if it begins with the call to abandon the attachment of the world, if it's the dying of the old man, if it is, as Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm identified with Jesus in his life and in his death and the life that I live, I live for Jesus. If you want the leading of God in your life. then you have to be willing to follow him. You have to be willing to follow Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested and he was imprisoned in Nazi Germany. It was rumored that he participated in the plot to kill Hitler. He wrote, quote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
it may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man. You see, discipleship isn't just simply a call to carry a cross. It's a call to die so that you can live for Christ. I heard the story of a man who was in Atlanta, Georgia, and he was showing another pastor a huge, well-lit sign of the cross. And he said, you see that cross right there? That cross cost me $10,000. And his partner said, you know, there was a time when you could get one for free. We tend to think of discipleship in terms of externals. It's a cross that you see. It's a church that you go to. It's the Bible that you read. It's the amount of memory verses that you've mastered. And I want you to go to church. And I want you to read your Bible. And I want you to have a quiet time. And I want you to stop living an immoral life. But guess what? Behavior that's disconnected from real life and Jesus will eventually break down. And your hypocrisy will catch up with you if you've never had a change of mind. And if you've never had a change of heart, at best, all you can do is superficially fake it for a while. The writer of Hebrews says, in fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. The goal of discipleship is maturity. The goal of discipleship is following Jesus. The goal of of discipleship is maturity that's reflected in commitment and competence and character and conviction. And Jesus says, and I will make you become fishers of men. Do you know what that means? By adding that simple sentence, he says that discipleship inevitably leads to evangelism. And by the way, you don't have to join a gym or run the stairs at Red Rocks to raise your aerobic level. Do you want to hear a Christian's heart start start to pound fiercely? Just say this word. Evangelism. But what comes next? Because your heart is beating out of fear or out of fascination. You see, the person who's called a disciple won't ignore the call to fish. And evangelism isn't the domain of some pushy used car Christian or televangelist or some door-to-door crusader. Reproduction is the normal outcome of life and maturity and health. You know what happens when you reach my age? Your kids grow up. All of my kids are grown. Two of them are married. My little kids became older kids, and then they became adolescents, and then they became grown men who married women. 
they reproduce. It's healthy and normal. The same is true of Christians. It's healthy and normal that the goal of maturation is going to lead to reproduction. And so in verse 18, it says they immediately left their nets and they followed him. Mark moves from the call of discipleship to the cost of the service. Look what it says. They immediately left their nets. The response is immediate. They left their livelihood. And by the way, the expression followed him implies permanence. Let me help you with that. When it says they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets never to return to that old lifestyle, if you will. It was a permanent thing. It wasn't where the call of discipleship goes, well, if this doesn't work out for me, I can always go back. I can always turn around. I can always go in a different direction. Now, I'm going to suggest something to you. The fact that Jesus would choose these men is remarkable in and of itself. But the fact that these men would leave everything and follow Jesus reveals something about them, doesn't it? By the way, did everyone Jesus call respond this way in the New Testament? What do you think the answer is? We know from Luke chapter 9, verse 59, someone is getting ready to follow Jesus and he says, allow me first to bury my father. Another rich young ruler comes in Matthew chapter 19 and verses 16 through 26. And he asks some questions about having eternal life and, and about following the law and following Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at him and loved him and invited him to follow him. And he says, there's just one thing I need you to do. I want you to sell everything that you have and I want you to give it to the poor. Notice he didn't say, I want you to give it to me. I want you to sow your best seed into my ministry. He doesn't say that. He knew that this young man had a problem with greed and with wanting to hold on to wealth, that wealth would be the satisfying solution to his problems. And the Bible says, and he went away. Because he was wealthy indeed. And you see, the call to salvation will come. And the call to discipleship will come. Tragedy. Most will not respond. Some will. Most won't. Peter, James, John. Andrew, they leave their boats. The rich young man will remain in his yacht. By the way, we all possess boats. It, maybe not literally, but we all have boats. We all have somewhere that we say, this belongs to me. This is what I value. This is what I own. When I was going down Wadsworth Boulevard, there was a um, the place where you go to get your car washed. And there was a great big boat. And the name on the boat was Baja. And I thought, that means lower. 
When we say Baha, we don't typically say lower or we don't typically mean lower. Baha means it's the opposite of Ariba, Abajo. Bajo is down and Ariba is up. And here is this boat and it's, it's named Downer. But it made me stop to think. And part of that thought was that we, the call of discipleship comes, the cost of discipleship is, is brought into configuration, and we begin to ask and answer the question, am I willing to leave the boat? And are you willing to leave the boat? And Jesus says, and note what it says, they followed him. By the way, there are three great barriers that keep us from embracing God's call to discipleship. One is volitional. That's the will. One is intellectual. That's the mind. One is emotional. That's the heart. And your will and your mind and your heart are the gatekeepers that keep many Christians from God honoring maturity. Because the moment that Jesus says, follow me, some simply say, I won't do it. Another group of people say, I can't do it. And some people say, I don't feel like it. My head's not there. My heart's not there. Where is your head? Where is your heart? I understand about not wanting to grow up. I understand about joining Peter Pan and Never Never Land. But I need you to understand something, maybe not for you, as much as I need for you to understand the text first, and then maybe you next. In the text, Peter, James, John, and Andrew... In order for them to disciple others, they must first be discipled. By the way, is that going to be the future of Peter, James, John, and Andrew? The rest of the book of Mark is going to be devoted to their discipleship and the others who follow Jesus. Your gatekeeper may keep you from a God-honoring maturity, but the truth is you're going to lose out on the biggest adventure of your life. In verse 19, it says, when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. Some scholars suggest that James and John may have been related to Jesus by mother, that their mother and and Jesus's mother may have been family. You if you want further information on that, you can look in chapter 15, verse 40, Matthew, chapter 27, verse 55. But what's interesting to me is when Jesus finds James and John, they're busy mending their nets. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for mending is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul reminds the pastor and teacher that they are to equip same word. The saints for the work of the ministry. Casting a net is very 
easy to do, I think. You pick up the net and you throw it into the water. Mending a net is a little bit more tedious. It's tiresome. It's specific. But think about that for just a moment. Jesus finds James and John doing what they will, in effect, be doing for the rest of their life. Peter will catch the fish and James and John will make sure that they stay in the net. By the way, let's just do the math here. If you have a net and it's filled with holes and fish swim into the net, where will the fish go? Well, the lame fish will get caught into the net anyway, but the smart fish will find the hole and exit the net. Doesn't that make sense to you? And doesn't it make sense to you that for everyone who throws the net, there has to be another person who actually takes care of the net and mends the net and makes sure that the net isn't filled with holes? James and John are going to devote their lives to the people who were caught. They're going to do the work of ministry. They're going to do the work of an evangelist. But they're also going to do the work of addressing the needs of hurting and broken people as they try to figure out a way of having some wholeness and wellness in relationship to your newfound faith in Jesus. The point When the Lord calls us, the Lord will equip us, and typically the Lord will give us the authority and the responsibility to fulfill that call. And guess what? He'll probably use the unique gifts and talents that you've been given over a period of time. It says in verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. He adds this interesting bit of information with the hired servants, which means that he had an ongoing business and it probably was paying pretty well. We're left with the impression that when James and John leave the boat and leave the net and leave the family business and they leave everything behind. Note again what it says. They went after him. The emphasis isn't just simply on turning your back on your family or the family business. It isn't just simply renouncing personal ambition. It isn't simply renouncing fame and the longing for fortune. It isn't simply the test of discipleship, although it's that. We could be reminded of the words of Jesus. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up the cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. All of that's true. But Peter and James and John and Andrew don't know all of that. At this point, Peter and Andrew and James and John are leaving fishing. But not really. They're going to fish some more. The call and the cost of discipleship are not complete until Christ's character is present in Christ's disciple. And part of the point of Mark's story is going to be how Peter becomes a disciple. And how Andrew and John 
and James walk with Jesus. But they're going to continue to fish. I'm going to close with a parable. It's called the parable of the fishermen. Listen, quote. Now it came to pass that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around, and the fish were hungry. And week after week, and month after month, and year after year, they who called themselves fishermen met in meetings and talked about their call to fish, the abundance of the fish, how they might go about fishing. And these fishermen built large, beautiful buildings, and they called them fishing headquarters. And the plea was that everyone should be a fisherman, and every fisherman should fish. And one thing they didn't do, they never actually fished. And finally, after one stirring meeting on the necessity for fishing, one young man left the meeting and he went fishing. And the next day he reported that he caught two outstanding fish. He was honored for his excellent catch. He was scheduled to visit all the big meetings to tell how he did it. So he quit fishing in order to tell other fishermen about the experience. He was also placed on the fisherman's general board as a person having considerable experience. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water and some bore the stench of the dead fish that washed up on shore every day. And they received the ridicule of those who made fun of the fishermen's clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen, but they never fished. And they wondered about those who felt it was of little use to attend a weekly meeting to talk about fishing where no one actually fished. But weren't they following the master who said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? I don't think so. According to George Barn, a church has spent $250 billion ministry dollars and only about one in eight people feel comfortable sharing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only about 2% of America's church's budgets are devoted to evangelism. And when the church does evangelize, the focus is on the amount of people who make an external response instead of the deep change of mind and heart and behavior. Guess what? I want both. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when he learned that he was going to be executed for plotting to kill Hitler, wrote, You must never doubt that I'm traveling with gratitude and cheerfulness along the road where I'm being led. My past life is brimful of God's goodness and my sins are covered by the forgiving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark's gospel, we'll watch Peter and James and John and Andrew. And they too will be tested in their commitment. They too will be stretched in their competence. They too will be built in their character. They too will be tried in their convictions. But they are disciples. Because they have to be disciples in order to disciple others. You want to disciple others? And make sure 
you have your head on straight. Make sure that your heart is right. Make sure that the person that you're following is Jesus. And make sure you understand the direction that he's going. And where your journey will come to an end. Not just in a death, but in a resurrection and a harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each man and each woman. I hear, Lord, the hearts racing with fear and the hearts racing with excitement. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who's fearful For the person who's finding every reason possible to ignore your call. Lord, I pray that you would be as patient with them as you were with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your love. Lord, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you for your patience. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, we thank you that you're not only willing to save us, But you're also willing to grow us up. And so again, Lord, I pray for each and every person that as they walk that road of discipleship through the twists and turns, through the miracles. And through the sadness. That, Lord, we will in the end come to that place of usefulness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.